0: Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history.
1: Well, Greg, so where are you coming from?
2: I'm uh, currently just outside of Toronto, Canada.
1: Okay, so it's a cross-border max intensity dialogue.
2: Uh, One that I look forward to. I'm very honored to join you, uh, Michael. I'm a huge fan of physics and uh, all the things that you stand for. So let's do it.
1: Okay. So getting ready for this, I I figured we could deal with it like a game show. I have 11 max intensity topics. I'll throw them out there. I'd like to cover them all, but you pick your favorite and we'll go from there. And then if we blow through them all, we'll go to some more. You ready? Go, sir. Okay. I got I got macroeconomic results, Bitcoin loans, Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin securities, Bitcoin ETFs, politics, Bitcoin defense theory, the Lightning Network, crypto carnage, crypto regulation, and 11 is miscellaneous bullish developments.
2: Which let's one strikes fancy? Let's go with miscellaneous bullish developments for a thousand, please, Michael.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we we can alternate. I'll, I'll start with uh, with uh, one that I stumbled upon just today, uh, Newberger Berman, uh, which has four hundred and five billion dollars of assets under management. Um, put out a report, and uh, they put it out last week. And uh, and let me see if I can grab this thing. It's pretty amazing.
3: Um,
1: hold on. They basically covered uh, Bitcoin and um, and uh, digital assets in general. And I gotta read you. The first line of it. Okay, it's it's a four-part series. It's Bitcoin, a cornerstone digital asset, part one. At the top of their website, if you go to nb.com, you'll see it. And it's uh, fairly well-researched. And it says, um, several competitors have emerged to challenge Bitcoin and its blockchain over the past decade. But here's why our options team believes the original digital asset is the only genuine digital asset and pretty much the entire thing is an analysis of the entire crypto industry which boils down to bitcoin is the standard and it's the only really digital property and this is a company with 400 billion dollars of asset under management and this report got published october 27 so just last week and i i thought that was just incredible to see legitimate institutions that are putting this out um, okay, your turn. You have a miscellaneous bullish?
2: Well, I want to comment on that one first. And it's, out, it's outstanding because uh, the timing is, is amazing in that uh, they actually, if it was published by their options team, which I think I understood you to say, nevertheless, Bitcoin is actually the most perfect option that I've ever seen in trading uh, financial risk. Because let's talk about some option theory, and I don't want to lose any of our listeners right off the bat, but Bitcoin is the perfect option because Bitcoin is long volatility. And as you know, in option pricing, volatility and an increase of volatility increases the value of your option. Also, Bitcoin has infinite theta meaning it has infinite time value. There's no expiry date on this insurance product. And then finally, Bitcoin has what's called gamma. And I don't really want to get, again, please don't leave the conversation yet, everyone, but gamma is basically a second derivative option, meaning the acceleration of your option price. Okay? Bitcoin is the perfect option, and the timing, Michael, was perfect because... I'm planning to write an article for Bitcoin magazine that uh, brings out what's called the Greeks, your Vega, your Theta, your Gamma of option pricing for the plebs. OK, so let's bring it down a couple of notches, though. My bullish thing that I saw uh, that aligns with uh, Newberger Berman was a couple of months ago, but it didn't receive nearly the press that it should. And many years ago, I traded with a gentleman uh, who used to work at New York Life, but then went into uh, his own fund management a hedge fund, a credit hedge fund, and he manages $45 billion, So it's not quite the same size as Neuberger Berman, but it is a credit-focused hedge fund by the name of Golden Tree. And the gentleman's name is Steve Tannenbaum. He's one of the best credit risk analysts. Uh, analysts and bet- best credit risk traders I've ever met. And he announced a similar allocation to Bitcoin as Newberger Berman. And the rationale was based on a lot of those same principles. So when the credit guys, like the smart credit guys like Steve Tannenbaum start getting involved other credit traders and credit allocators take notice so slowly than suddenly right but you're absolutely right this is part of a process where institutions wrap their head around valuing bitcoin whether it's using options theory whether it's using credit analysis or whether it's just outright good risk management that says this is the best asymmetric trade they've ever seen and they need exposure to it. So great, great category and great start, thank you.
1: Yeah, I feel like this will start an avalanche of of thinking here. Okay, second bullish development, Coinbase, million dollar credit lines for everybody. Well, if they got 56 million or 60 million customers and everybody can get up to a million dollar credit line, no credit check. I think they just kind of kicked off the uh, the the Bitcoin collateral wars. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, eight percent is not perfect, but on the other hand, being able to borrow money without a credit check at eight percent against an asset, which which has a ten-year track record of going up one hundred and seventy percent a year on average, is kind of a no-brainer. And I think that what happens next is is you see this race with every other custodian to offer com- equal to or more compelling credit terms and this is going to change the entire narrative and people are going to start taking that Bitcoin really is great collateral for everybody. You have a on you know, that?
2: Yeah, that's a great commentary. And I want to dial it back uh to the to the fiat world though. So yes, I'll agree a hundred percent with what you said. And I don't want to take it any further. I wanna actually applaud your um, your initiative in the fiat world, and I draw a parallel there, because uh, you successfully arbitraged the credit markets at MicroStrategy, uh, firstly starting in the convertible bond world, but then moving to my playground, which was the high-yield debt world. And I have a question for you, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to lay out for the audience what Mr. Saylor Did for his uh, fiduciary responsibility for creating wealth for all capital contributors. He decided to borrow straight high yield debt from the public debt markets at six, between six and a quarter and six and a half percent, was what they call price talk. Meaning the underwriter had gone around and canvassed the accounts, we're bringing MicroStrategy to market. What's the price talk? If they didn't like the deal, they'd put it at the high end of price talk, meaning the coupon would be 6.5%. And they built a book. That's what underwriters do. So they go around, they canvass the big accounts, including a New Newberger berman high-yield account, including Capri in Los Angeles. All of these are accounts that I've traded with or against in my career. And they got interest in a book that was many times oversubscribed. And the reason we know it was oversubscribed is because ultimately the coupon came out at six and one-eighth, okay? So the true, the, the actual price, the cost to MicroStrategy was six and one-eighth annualized uh, yield. And my question is coming soon, Michael, but here I want to lay out why did high-yield funds jump through hoops to get exposure to MicroStrategy? Well, first of all, it was a fairly high-quality, high-yield rating credit rating it was also 200 basis points higher than the high yield index for a good quality rating so the high yield index was yielding about four percent at the time and MicroStrategy came at six and one eighth and the issue blew out the door and it traded up in the secondary market rightly so there was some flipping of bonds and whatnot the point is Mr. Sailor successfully raised fixed coupon debt, fiat debt that will debase over time at a six and one eighth coupon and use of proceeds was to buy Bitcoin. That's exactly what every single CFO in the world, including household CFOs, which are you listeners on the line right now, should be doing. You should be borrowing in low coupon or cheap fiat currency fixed term debt and arbing the market so my question back to you michael at what coupon would you have done the deal where would you have said it doesn't make sense for me to do this trade meaning issue fiat debt at a coupon at which point would you have walked away from the deal and if you don't want to divulge it i i understand but i'm gonna guess it was a lot higher than six and an eighth percent annualized is that fair? Well, I mean,
1: there's, yeah there's two ways to answer that i mean there's um it would make sense to do uh to do the deal you know at a higher interest rate certainly you know it, if you said would i borrow money at eight percent in order to buy bitcoin uh, yeah, sure I would. Right. Like, I think that the Coinbase deal that they offered everybody at 8% is a pretty good idea, as long as you got the right loan to value setting. But, um, but our, our interest is also to make sure that the deal is priced uh, competitively and also also in a way that doesn't send a message to the market that we're not credit worthy. So, um, right, if we, if we were to do the deal too much, it would undermine certain other things. The truth is, um, you know, if you're interested in that, uh, the, the history of those financings, they're fascinating. Maybe I'll give you a quick uh, review. First of all, you know, here, here's the postmortem, uh, the big picture. The company stock was $120 a share about a year and a quarter ago, and we had uh, $500 million in cash. And so when we actually made our first announcement, from the day we made our first announcement, we were considering Bitcoin. Um, or actually, the day that we announced we were going to buy Bitcoin, uh, the stock went from 120, 121 to 810. So uh, we are up 575% since the day we initiated the strategy. We were concerned when we did the, uh, the, first, um, the first announcement that people might want out. So we paired our first $250 million buy with a $250 million Dutch auction at 140 bucks a share. So we offered people a $20 premium to sell their stock back to us. And we uh, got about 60 million tendered. So from the point at the end of the Dutch auction, when uh, when people had the chance to choose, they could either basically be short Bitcoin or long Bitcoin, the strategy. We're up 478% since that point, right? If you had bought, if, if you sold into the tender, it didn't work as well as if you actually held the shares. Uh, From there, we did two converts. And the first convert we did was a strike price of $398 a share. We started uh, looking for $400 million, Greg. We upsized that deal to $650 million. So we were oversubscribed. We priced it low into the range. And we did um, like 75 basis points as the coupon. 37% was the premium. uh, And $398 was the strike price on the stock. I think the stock was trading what, like 300 at the time. So we bought Bitcoin there. We bought that Bitcoin at like 19,000 or in that area. So you know that's tripled. I guess we double tripled it. Then the next deal came, and it was a a billion dollar deal. We started looking for 600 million, and we upsized it to a billion fifty million. So we were again oversubscribed the range was zero to 50 basis points. We priced that at the bottom of the range at 0% coupon with a 50% premium. So then we bought that Bitcoin and we bought it, you know, low about 50, 51,000, 52,000 in that range. Uh, so people had fun making fun of me for that one for a while. I had to live through the China crackdown with the $50,000 Bitcoin buy, but, uh, I'm okay with it. Um, so the first 1.7 billion in debt is pretty much blended rate of 25 basis points or something like, yeah. And then that, that junk bond, that's fine. We started looking for 400 million and we upsized that to 500 million because we were oversubscribed and we did price the low end of the range. We did six and an eighth. And, um, that bond to put this in perspective, that bond is against, uh, against, it is the first claim on all the cash flows of the company to eternity and you know and we're generating i think we had 27 million dollars in operating income last quarter so we're you know and our, our guidance is like 70 to 90 million in cash flow a year or operating income a year maybe so we're very cash positive and the bond had the claim on the cash flows and the claim on the intellectual property of the company which which I might add owns michael.com and hope.com and uh, emma.com and strategy.com. Some really cool domains. Plus we have all our other intellectual property and patents. So you're basically, you're extending 500 million in credit against, against the first claim on a global multinational profitable enterprise software company with a, you know, substantially reoccurring revenue stream. So uh, it didn't seem that risky, but it was a, it was traditional junk bond. And I think it was more expensive for us, primarily not because of the Bitcoin, Greg, it was because we're a first time issuer and we just got credit rated. And uh, in that particular case, you know, getting a credit rating from Moody's and S&P, it's challenging of your first time issuer, but also it's challenging because we had to explain the Bitcoin so so we are really uh educating the credit rating agencies on bitcoin and um the deal came at six and an eighth and and the other twist on that deal greg is that's we're the first company to do a dutch auction to buy bitcoin we're the first company to do a treasury uh, a treasury reserve asset analysis to buy bitcoin We're the first publicly traded company to do a convert with the use of proceeds to buy Bitcoin. And we became the first company to do a junk bond where the use of proceeds was to buy Bitcoin. And we also pledged the Bitcoin that we bought as collateral. So the other interesting twist is we ended up buying $500 million worth of Bitcoin or maybe maybe it's $480 million, I forget. But about $13,500 Bitcoin, something like that at $36,000 a coin. And that's in the collateral package. So right now, that $500 million note is yielding 200 basis points. Actually, in the aftermarket, it's lower than that's traded. It's traded up, so the actual yield is down. But the note note nominally was 200 basis points above the junk bond index. And now it's collateralized by a billion dollars of Bitcoin. (laughs) And it's only a $500 million note. And it's also collateralized by the company. So... So, So, Summary on the entire financing thing is we, we, we borrowed $2.2 billion at a blended interest rate of like 1.5% interest with a combination of the converts and the junk. And every single thing we bought from any of the financings, of course, now is in the money. Our balance sheet right now looks like we've invested $3.1 billion in Bitcoin. It's worth 7100000000 billion. We're up $4 billion. So $4 billion. $4 0, $13 million, but who's counting?
2: Well, my hat goes off to you. And yes, that was my playground. High-yield bond, junk bond, uh, first claim on uh, first priority or uh, your uh, priority of claim. So yeah, that's what we like to do, Michael. We like to bend the guy over and us a coupon. But here's what I will say for anyone listening. Understand the difference between a convertible bond where the coupon is actually impacted by the optionality of the conversion price on the stock. A convertible bond becomes dilutive to stakeholders, equity stakeholders, if it gets exercised. Whereas a pure capital, pure high yield bond issue is not dilutive. So that's why the six and one eighth coupon is straight High yield debt, non dilutive to equity holders, whereas the convert is run by uh, ARB desks, convertible ARB desks that are bla- basically pay- playing the optionality game, the deltas and vegas of micro strategy stock against a zero coupon. All they want to do is play the Greeks of options pricing. But let's not go there on this. I just want to take my hat off to you and say, sir, you are rewriting the rules of capital markets right in front of the Goldman Sachs and the JP Morgans of the world who Jamie Dimon by the way says well bitcoin has no intrinsic value and therefore he doesn't recommend that people own it guess what Jamie there's lots of people out there that disagree with you markets have spoken and every single CFO with access to the various markets like MicroStrategy had you got to consider this folks Debt has never been cheaper in fiat terms, measured by a coupon. Buy, buy, and buy, meaning sell the bonds, buy Bitcoin. Sell the bonds to Wall Street, like MicroStrategy did, and buy Bitcoin with the the proceeds. Do not own bonds, people. Do not own bonds. Own Bitcoin.
1: Hey, Greg, it's... Yeah. The, thank you. You're too kind. The opportunity presented itself, so we took it. But I, I will make this comment for people listening. Um, sometimes they wonder why someone would do this. The truth is, is um, it's totally rational and it's a benefit to every single person on every side of this trade. For example, the people that bought those bonds, they didn't have the option if you bought if you bought the equity in MicroStrategy, you didn't have the option to buy Bitcoin. You could only buy the equity. Um, if you bought the bonds, uh, the convert bonds, you didn't have the option to buy the equity unless there was a convert. And you didn't have the option to buy Bitcoin. They had pools of capital, billions of dollars worth. And so the people that bought, sometimes, you know, the Bitcoin maxis, they're like, why would you ever buy the security? Well, I mean, the, the answer is Bitcoin's up three hundred fifty seven percent year over year. We're up three hundred forty six percent year over year. Maybe you do better Bitcoin, but if you had ten billion dollars and you couldn't buy Bitcoin, but you could buy, but you could buy an equity, then you were you were basically getting three hundred forty six percent, and that compares to the uh, you know it it compares to the S and P, right? And if we look at uh, if we look at the S&P in the last 12 months, you're 35%, right? So, so the people that are buying the equity are choosing a Bitcoin equity instead of a non-Bitcoin linked equity. The ones that bought to convert, the first convert struck at, at 398. That was the best performing convertible bond in the entire year, Greg. Like that was the single best performing bond sold in the entire year. And so the guys that bought the bond They were pretty smart. They bought the best bond of the year. They made a fortune. Then there's the second bond. You're like, well, why would you buy that? Well, because I can't buy equity and I can't buy Bitcoin. And I can get Bitcoin exposure. And then for the junk bond, you could say, I'd never, you know, I would never loan money at six and an an eighth. Well, you know, their business is is to loan money at four and an eighth. And uh, if you're loaning money to Apple Computer, you're loaning it to them at two and an eighth. And so it's... Bitcoin fixes everything, and if you inject Bitcoin into junk bonds, you put 100, 200 basis point boost on it, and if you inject it into equity, you put a boost on that, and you really just got to always look at the alternative that the investor had. They don't, they don't have the alternative to go with the pure play. Okay, next subject. We got to go max intensity. What do you want to jump to?
2: Uh, can you give me, why don't you pick the subjects? I didn't write them down.
1: <laughs> okay. Let's go, let's well, go. Why don't, we, why don't we talk about macroeconomic results for the past 12 months? This is it. We're already on the subject. Bitcoin's Beautiful. up 357%. Gold is down 7.26%. percent s and is up 35%. NASDAQ's up 42%. And long-dated sovereign debt is down 8%. What's your takeaway?
2: Well, I'm a bond guy. So my takeaway is sovereign debt is for fools. And it's proving that because sovereign debt is only a contract. And most of these monkeys have managed uh, debt since my time when I started when 10 year U.S. Treasury rates were double digits, 14 percent. But what is a bond? It's only a contract to receive a coupon over a period of time. If you held that original 14% bond through the 10 years, that's what your return would have been, 14% annualized. But everyone thinks they're a trading guru, and what they do after two years is they trade in their, 10%, their 14% coupon for the going market coupon, which is 10%, and they crystallize a capital gain on their bond because the price of the bond, the 14-coupon bond, is trading at a substantial premium, and they feel like a hero. But the problem is when interest rates go to zero and then back up to one and a half percent in the U.S. Treasury tenure, guess what the return on the U.S. Treasury tenure is going to be with a 100 percent certainty, not including a potential default. Let's assume the default probability is so low that it is a 100 percent certainty. Your return on the U.S. Treasury over the next 10 years with 100 percent certainty is going to be 1.58 percent where it ended the day today after chairman powell's announcement listen guys it's only math it's a mathematical contract Mot also michael it's written in fiat so you borrow 10 or you borrow a hundred dollars today or you lend a hundred dollars today when you get your hundred dollars back in 10 years The purchasing power, that $100, has been debased by, what, 35% easily? So you've made 1.5% over 10 years, and you get $0.65 of value on the dollar you lent at time zero. Bonds are the worst risk return asset class I've ever seen in my 30 years of managing risk. Anybody who owns bonds doesn't understand duration and convexity or the first derivative and the second <coughs> derivative of bond pricing. It's really a shame. And yet every financial advisor out there in the world is telling the parents of people on this call, you have to own bonds because they are low risk. That's absolutely false and horrible advice. Bonds are an incredibly risky investment right now. The chances of you making an appropriate return on investment in bonds on a real basis, that is after subtracting the costs of inflation, is very, very low. You are taking huge risks for very low potential return. And that's why bond math matters. Mm -hmm. So macroeconomically, does it surprise me that long-term sovereign debt returned minus 8%? I'll just ask you, what do you think it would have returned if the global central banks in, weren't in the market, suppressing the true rise in interest rates, which would have turned that, lo- that loss into something easily in the 20% range? So let's yeah. run through a quick bond math for you. If the 30-year treasury moves from today's approximate 2% rate, if it goes to 3%, how much does the bond price move on the 30-year treasury? It moves about 20 points down. 20 points, people. This is a real risk that every insurance company in the world is carrying on their balance sheet as long-term assets balanced against their long-term liabilities. It's idiotic. It is absolutely conflicted advice, and yet everyone says you need to own bonds for capital preservation. No. You actually need to own Bitcoin for capital preservation, and capital appreciation and you need to fund it by issuing debt again you can be a borrower or a lender you're supposed to be a borrower at these rates anyone who's lending money at these rates is absolutely failed in risk analysis
4: for context can you just can you uh elaborate on what these rates were you know 10 15 maybe 20 years ago just that everybody can kind of anchor appropriately
2: Yeah, so I started in 1988 trading bonds and U.S. Treasury ten years were 14%. That's 1985 when I got involved in 1988. They were, uh, you know, when I started trading for institutional money, that was my first job uh, at Royal Bank of Canada. That they were double digits still, but when bond prices, when interest rates go down, bond prices go up, and interest rates have gone from 12% down to next to zero. You flip that on its ear when interest rates go from one percent up to five percent bond prices get carved you lose money now if you don't sell them and it matures all you've done is earned your coupon which i'm trying to point out is a pretty very poor return
1: sorry. yeah sorry i i i agree with you um and i think the interesting the interesting ish observation is there are large pools of capital that are locked into investing in um, obsolete asset classes, right? So gold used to be a store of value, and it isn't anymore. But there's still trillions of dollars locked up in gold, and gold's returned um, two minus two basis points a year for a decade. So you gotta you gotta think there's just an institutional bias there. And with regard to bonds, you know I got. I can't understand why you would be long bonds, uh, be, but there's big institutional lock-in, right? There are trillions of dollars of money that's locked in that can only invest in bonds. So if you're going to invest in bonds, I would say you should invest in Bitcoin-backed bonds that yield higher yields with lower risk. But having said it all, right there, I remember when uh, we hit March 2020, Uh the 30-year swap rate hit 72 basis points. And I remember that day vividly because I entered into a 30-year swap on that day at 72 basis points because my thinking was I can borrow money for 72 basis points for the rest of my life. It'll never get any cheaper than this, or I didn't think it would. And I've been waiting, right? Because the, the natural fair market value for a 30-year loan ought to be four, five, six, seven, eight percent, right? But, but in that one year, the current, like as of today, the 30-year swap rate, when I checked it, was 175 basis points. So, so we're 100 basis points more than we were. But there's clearly financial suppression. And there's like an infinite bid on the other side. Someone is willing to loan money for for 30 years for 1.75%, right? And I guess uh, I've given up on the, uh, like, what I did there was I shorted bonds, Greg. But I, I kind of gave up on the idea that shorting bonds will work. Being long bonds doesn't make much sense, but, but you know, if you were short the 30-year swaps in Europe, they're currently 34 basis points right now. And I followed that market for six years. And that some a couple of years ago, they got pegged at zero. And the central bankers or somebody just has those things pegged to the floor. And it doesn't look like they're ever going to come back. Or at least they're not going to come back until something else happens that you know i what, can't you figure know what out. that's
2: going to be michael and this and what? it's a great segue it's going to be when the world stops worrying about interest rate from an inflation perspective and actually prices interest rates on sovereign credit as a potential default candidate and this is the whole basis of me valuing bitcoin as credit default insurance so you don't need to short treasuries you just need to be long bitcoin and the flip side of that is the infinite bid comes from a number of places. It comes from insurance companies that need to match their long-term liabilities with an asset written in their investment guidelines that has to be high-quality, gilt edge treasuries. And then flip side of that is, or not flip side, added to that is the quantitative easing and the, the Fed purchasing $120 billion a month. All of this adds up to a currency that debases because long-term rates aren't where you think they should be, but who cares about you and me in the financial markets of credit. Let's listen to Stan Druckenmiller. One of the best hedge fund managers ever says, if the fed wasn't in the market right now, 10 year rates would be at least four and a half to 5%. Okay. That's Stanley Druckenmiller. I will tell you that I read a great report called the bear traps report and bear traps says, Mind you interest it, CPI isn't even 5% if CPI was actually measured using the true formula from 1980 year over year CPI was 14% annualized this is just one more gimmick that the governments are using to pretend inflation isn't what it should be. So what I'm going to answer your question is, when people stop worrying about inflation and then start start worrying about the ability of governments to make good on their obli- obligations, i.e. their credit quality, that's when the Fed can't keep their finger on the dike anymore. They can't go into the credit default swap markets And control that because that's the last open market bastion of pricing true risk. And it's when inflation risk moves to credit risk that we are going to see things really start to accelerate. And to summarize, Bitcoin is default protection on a basket of currencies, fiat currencies, whose credit quality is continuing to decrease purely because their finances are getting worse and worse and their ability to pay their debt is getting uh less certain and less certain
1: well if if i was an investor i think i would bet that five or ten percent of the macro gold investors will throw in their towel and buy bitcoin and, and 5 or 10% or some small number of the bond investors will start to reallocate to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin will, will perform long before we correct the problems in the, in the bond market or the interest market. I've given up waiting for the 30-year swap rates to move up. Kind of thrown in the towel on that. Like I, it feels like the, the, the banks have too much power. Yeah. Okay. Person, hey, let's move yeah. on to the next subject. Can I let's say before you go?
2: Before different. you go, I just want to talk about one guy who I really wanted to call out on that basis. uh The okay. gold guys. We have a friend in Bitcoin land. His name is Lawrence Lapard. He's a gold bug who actually embraces Bitcoin as a better store of value than uh, gold. Um, I think we're all rowing in the same direction, Michael, the gold bugs and the Bitcoiners. And I don't really care whether Bitcoiners embrace or sorry, gold guys embrace Bitcoin because it's what a 10 trillion dollar market. What I do know is they at least have the sound money principles down. It's the bond guys, the 400 trillion dollar market called global debt which needs to understand the beauty of Bitcoin. So shout out to Lawrence Lepard. Shout out to Bitcoin gold, or gold bugs who have become Bitcoin bugs. And sound money will rule the world. It's going to be Bitcoin, but at least the gold guys were halfway down the path of understanding the necessity. So thank you.
1: Well, I mean, we agree on the principle of sound money, but we disagree on the, on the principle of whether or not there could be two. I, I think that uh, the catastrophic the catastrophic error is to agree on sound money and then put half your portfolio in gold, because you lose you know you lose half your wealth because it's going to zero. I no. mean, there, at the end of the day, there can only be one winner in this, and it's pretty obvious that the one winner is is uh, digital gold and Bitcoin, and gold is the loser, and it's you can see it in the numbers. So. So I mean everybody I see that says they like gold as sound money they they start the conversation with well we like gold because it's been sound money and we end the conversation with and so we like gold but there's but but none of them ever really seem to be addressing the fundamental issue which is gold is being rapidly demonetized right in front of our faces and it has been It's no longer, it's probably been demonetized since the rise of the Vanguard 500 index fund. I mean, gold might have been a store of value in 1914. Somewhere in the the 20th century, sovereign debt became that store of value when sovereign debt was yielding 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% interest. And then that stopped being a store of value. And then the store of value shifted to S&P index funds and ETFs. And right now the debate is really between how much of your portfolio to leave in an ETF like a and P and how much to put into Bitcoin. I, I just don't think there can be a reasonable debate about how much of your portfolio to put into gold.
2: Right? Hallelujah, just, sir. Hallelujah. But I'll tell you, having managed institutional money in my lifetime, it's very difficult to go to a client who you're managing money for and and say you're a risk manager, and say I'm a risk manager, and I'm 100% allocated to this one asset class. Which I don't. I, I believe you're correct. The only thing I'll say is a lot of these guys are desiring to re- to continue to manage money because otherwise, they tell their clients, "I'm 100% allocated to this beautiful trade called Bitcoin," and the client says, "Thank you very much. I'm not going to pay you a fee, Mister Sailor. I'll just manage it myself." Right. So the institutional forum is is uh, full of people that you know manage risk differently than perhaps you do with your personal portfolio and I congratulate you for that. You have you have seen the future way before many other people have. The reality is money on Wall Street is managed using diversification, okay? Not diversification, diversification. They need to pretend they're adding value by diversifying their portfolio so let's take the next category but well done and i agree with you but again i like to focus on the elephant in the room i'm going after 400 trillion dollars of really stupid money called uh lenders and a 10 trillion dollar asset class like uh gold ah that's a rounding error
1: fair enough securities and etfs let's talk about bitcoin securities and etfs i think um I think it's a, very, a fascinating week uh, that we're in right now. Um, a thing I've observed is there are a lot of investors that can't buy the property, uh, but they can buy securities. And so MicroStrategy is an example of one of those securities they could buy. Um, you know, today, uh, today my stock traded $500 million of liquidity in the marketplace, right? So that gives you a sense of, of size, Um Marathon, I think, is hitting an all-time high. I think Marathon might have hit an all-time high today, and they traded a billion dollars of liquidity in the market with a market cap of seven point six point four billion on my screen. Um, Riot traded five hundred million today in the market securities uh, with a market cap north of three billion, and then you've got Bitfarms, Hut Eight. You know, Bit Digital, Griffin, you know, you've got Hive, you've got Argo, um, a whole set of Bitcoin miners, probably a dozen. If you look year over year, this is a sea change. And if you look at the amount of trading, right, these, all these Bitcoin miners constitute a channel between the institutional money managers that have large amounts of fiat capital and have charters and constraints about what they can invest in. And, of course the the Bitcoin digital ecosystem and then we've got the two uh, the two ETFs we've got beto and BTF uh, Beto looks like they traded 160 million dollars today uh, Valkyrie about eight m- much less um, but uh, but all told I just kind of ran through about a dozen a dozen public securities that are all giving you Bitcoin exposure with different degrees of leverage and with different degrees of liquidity. Now I think that what's interesting here, which people don't realize is if I run a hedge fund and I buy a hundred million dollars worth of um, a security, I can do it through my prime broker or my, my broker-dealer and then it's part of my collateral package. And uh, I can then borrow sometimes 50% loan-to-value, sometimes 60, 70, 80% loan-to-value at the, at the LIBOR rate or the SOFR rate plus 50 basis points. So it means that, that uh, my $100 million is, um, is liquid f- to 50, 60, 70 million in capital at, almost, at less than 1% interest. And I can do that in a phone call in like two minutes. If I wanted to go buy $100 million worth of Bitcoin, I'd have to change my charter. I'd have to brief all my limited partners. I'd have to convene committees to work through compliance, security, due diligence. I'd have to go vet five different exchanges, go through a 12 week to 20 week process. Then I'd have to master trading and custody and then deal with the audit and the legal and the disclosure consequences. And after I bought the hundred million in Bitcoin, if I'm, you know, if I'm lucky, I set up a credit line. Bitcoin credit lines were non-existent six months ago or a year ago. We just saw Marathon get extended a hundred million dollar credit line um, from Silvergate. Uh, where the majority of the collateral looks like it's Bitcoin and only a small amount is fiat cash. And I'm seeing in, in the marketplace more and more of those credit lines starting to be talked about. And you know about the consumer lines, which they vary. But um, that hedge fund would have to pay not 50 basis points, but 500 basis points if they could borrow. But it would break all their systems because their accounting system is plugged into their, their prime broker, it breaks their comp plans, it breaks their collateral package, and it breaks all of their charters. So you, when you put the two side by side, what you can see is that it's probably a thousand times harder to buy $100 million worth of property than $100 million worth of security, and uh, the banking's not so developed. So this, this is a roundabout way of saying the success of bitcoin as an asset class is going to be in part due to the maturation of the securities that plug into bitcoin and if you want to watch something you watch the amount of trading in the securities and the market capitalization like track the market capitalization of all the bitcoin miners or the or the synthetic bitcoin miners like my company and then you track all the capital that's in the ETFs, and you compare that, you know, to the trading of the of the rest of the asset class. Um, you can't come to any conclusion other than a bullish one from all this. These are all just really wonderful developments.
2: Yes, I uh, I love your analysis as always. It's uh, it takes Wall Street to a, a separate, a, uh, you know, another level. Uh, full disclosure: um, my company that I'm involved with is uh, uh, HUD Eight is a uh, is a client of ours. We've sold them uh, a bunch of power uh, for their use. Obviously, we know what they use the power for. Uh, so full disclosure, I'm involved in a private company that uh, has HUD 8 as a client, and I do follow that ecosystem quite well. Uh, an opportunity to give a shout-out to uh, Mike Alfred, who's been on this trade for a long time. Michael, you're 100% right. It's so much easier to buy a exposure to Bitcoin in a format that you're used to, it's just like buying a uh, a common stock on the New York Stock Exchange. But being from Canada, um, and I'm very proud of Canada for this, for this, I was a founding partner of a company that brought the first closed-end Bitcoin fund to trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And that was actually the precursor to a Bitcoin ETF, a perfect spot or cash-based Bitcoin ETF that lives in Canada and there's a number of them now and Canada has frequently been a leader on the ETF front and I think that there will be a spot ETF of spot Bitcoin ETF to trade in the US in the near future because they're going to get comfortable with the reality that the true liquidity in the Bitcoin market isn't nearly as manipulated as some of these fudsters would like to believe and that the regulators in Canada have got their heads around it. So the reason that the, the BITO exists on the futures in the U.S., as we know, is because they trade on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the futures do, and the regulators are comfortable that there's not market manipulation that takes place on the, on the futures. Uh, but the futures are in contango. What that means is the futures is an up, upward sloping curve. And if you buy a one-month Bitcoin future and it continues to roll down the curve, meaning the one month out uh, price is higher than the current spot price, the Bitcoin ETF is basically bleeding that value on the futures curve. And that's not the ideal exposure for someone who wants ETF exposure to Bitcoin. So you can do it in Canada. You can't do it in the U.S. yet. But let's talk about how big those ETFs are in Canada on a relative basis. And if you use the rule of 10 to 1, which is typically the Canadian population, Canadian GDP and Canadian market caps, you'll see that the future for ETFs in the U.S., spot ETFs, is very bright. And that's how a lot of big institutions are going to be comfortable getting their Bitcoin exposure. A lot of people will say, not your keys, not your coins. These, these institutions need to get their head around custody, around uh, facilitating their own systems, as you said. So I grew up in the hedge fund industry. We never used that much leverage, but leverage is beneficial when markets are going your way and very unbeneficial when leverage is unwinding and people are uh, asking for a capital uh, uh, payback. Uh, leverage is a, two, a double-edged sword. Uh, whether you're at a hedge fund or if you're doing it on a personal basis. But remember this and remember the importance of owning the physical versus the equity, not derivatives, but equity plays as well. Bitcoin mining is a very difficult business in the long term because you don't control your input costs, which are energy, and you don't control your revenue or your output price because that's set by the open market that's a very different business model than other businesses out there and it's my belief and the belief of the company that i'm involved in in canada that you're going to want to have vertical exposure to the bitcoin mining function you're going to want to be an energy company that mines bitcoin and then distributes bitcoin into the various platforms of the world whether they're etfs whether they're bitcoin lending companies the coinbase platforms the sat streets uh, sat streets a private company in canada that is a bitcoin exchange even the ibex guys okay ibex mercado belongs in what's called the top of the funnel Uh, vertical that I'm laying out and it's my chance to again call out my friends in South America well Central America to be exact originally from Guatemala but working to implement the merchant solution in El Salvador for the Chivo wallet they've got you know I've made a personal investment in their company or to be honest a commitment to make a personal investment at a market valuation that is so friggin attractive for me Greg Foss that I see value in all different parts of the ecosystem in a vertical, not just Bitcoin mining, not just energy providing miners or energy to Bitcoin miners, but a slice of a vertical that takes the molecule from the ground, digital energy, or excuse me, natural resource energy molecule from the ground, CH4 turns it into digital energy called bitcoin and distributes that beautiful solution to the world and you can get a piece of that in a common stock on the to come and i'm not saying that we're doing it but i will also say somebody smart is going to do that and it's going to be very exciting for the big funds in the world that can't get their head around owning the physical but want a an exposure from soup to nuts so lots of cool things happening in canada Michael, you've nailed it once again. There's so many restrictions that require people to play stupid games. Rather than getting exposure to the physical, they have to jump through hoops to get exposure to some smaller cap derivative type of exposure. Over time, this will become more efficient as the education process increases.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Bitcoin mining industry is fascinating, and there's going to be a lot of different strategies, and there's a lot of dynamic, decentralized innovation going on, and so the the most exciting thing is just to just to unleash the entrepreneurial creativity. I think um, you know, I just I just talked a little bit about why I thought securities were good for the ecosystem, but I'm going to actually swap back to discuss property. I think that that. One, one thing uh, that we need to do is is we need to go educate the entire world on the benefits of holding property as opposed to a security. And, uh, and that what I mean by that is that, that um, if I had a building in Vegas and I owned the entire building outright and I was the property owner, I could put a lien on it. I could put a mortgage on it. I could lease it out. I could develop it and upgrade it and I could sell it. Those are my property rights. But if I was an individual, you know, middle class uh, investor, I would have to buy a share in a REIT and I would be a security holder, and maybe they sell a thousand shares and I own one one thousand of the building. And I have this limited partnership in the cash flows of the building, but I don't have the right to lien it, mortgage it, sell it, develop it, or lease it. I don't have property rights. I have security rights. And um, up until Bitcoin, only the rich that were well-organized could actually own property as an investment long-term. And the real state change of Bitcoin is that now you can have $387 of digital property and you own the same property rights as an Uber driver as a billionaire would have. And and uh, and so one of these fundamental things that's happening is once you understand that Bitcoin is not just digital gold, it's digital property. And what's the difference? Gold, you can't lease and gold, you can't mortgage. And, you know, and, and gold can't really be developed to be upgraded. And, and you would never put a lien on gold. So when you decide you want a billion dollars of property of the building. Sorry. Hello, can you hear me? I still hear you, Michael. Yeah, I can hear you yeah.
4: great. You're good.
1: Okay,. Great. So what I'm saying is is the metaphor of digital property uh, is much more powerful. Digital gold takes you to a 10 trillion or 20 trillion dollar market cap. Digital property <clears throat> takes you to a hundred trillion or 200 trillion dollar or more addressable market because you can lease and mortgage and develop and lean. And if you understand bitcoin is the dematerialization of property then you realize when you put your bitcoin into an application when you give it to someone else you're kind of putting a lien on it when you loan it right you're you're leasing it when you borrow against it you're mortgaging it and um and this is the first property that you can buy in quantity thousand dollars a hundred dollars ten dollars one dollar a million dollars ten million dollars a hundred million a billion or ten billion everybody pretty much has exactly the same property rights and um i i think that you know i when i finish with my my suggestion that it's good to own securities that have bitcoin exposure i then flip and i say it's really good to own the property the reason that microstrategy doesn't didn't buy an etf or didn't buy a fund and the reason that we bought the bitcoin is is really a couple of things one we wanted the property rights so that we could transfer the property to different counterparties without a taxable event and that's a pretty big deal and um and the second is all publicly traded companies are limited to having no more than 40 percent of their balance sheet in securities and you run into a, a hard SEC 40 Act, where you become an investment company when you have more than 40%. So Bitcoin as digital property is profound because it really could sit on a balance sheet like a treasury instrument or like cash, and ETFs never will, and, and stocks and securities never will unless they change the law. And the other reason it's profound is because 8 billion people can have exactly the same legal theoretical property rights that, you know, the Renaissance organization or, or, you know, a $20 billion property development company has. And once you, once you get that idea through your head, then you realize that, uh, you just want to keep buying this stuff as much as possible because the last point, of course, in addition to having property, you've got property in cyberspace, which means that anybody with a mobile phone application or a website might want to borrow your property or use their your property to fuel their application. And, um, and that's where where I go to my final metaphor, which is digital gold is just a block of monetary energy that's in a basement. Digital property is a building or structure that people are actually using that generates yield. And digital energy is when I just dematerialize that that entire thing and I vibrate at 60 megahertz where I split it to a million parts, send it to a million places, fetch it back every five seconds. And you can see where digital energy could be used in social networks or trading applications or or any kind of financial application. You could build it into cars and build it into anything. And all of those aspects are incredibly powerful things. They're they're options that you get when you own the property. But if you own the security, then you're just limited as a limited partner and the general partner that actually controls the property has to decide to do those things. And they may choose not to do those things ever, right? like the frustration of I, I own a share in a building in Vegas and, and I get paid a dollar a year in rent and I can actually find a person will pay me $100 million a year but the general partner doesn't want to lease it to them <laughs> or they're in a different city and so they don't want to move the building or they can't move the building. So I, I think, you know, Bitcoin is digital property. When, when, when investors start to realize that, it's it's so profound as to take us from a trillion dollars of, of addressable market to 10 trillion to 100 trillion to 500 trillion and uh, it becomes uh, you know half of everything now what is perfect monetary energy or what is perfect energy it's money right so digital money is digital energy and the matter you know instantiation the static instantiation of money is property and uh, and the slowest instantiation, the approximation of it, once upon a time was gold. And uh, we're just, we're the Renaissance right now. So I I guess my summary here is we got to educate the world on this. And there's you know there's no right and wrong. I don't want to come across as loving securities and not liking the property. The truth is I love it all, and I think that I think that everything is happening at the same time to the benefit of the entire ecosystem. Good Lord,
2: I could not add anything to that. Uh, I, I think it's beautiful. Um, so nothing to add. Uh, I love your total addressable market thesis. Um, I want to uh, just, add, uh, when I say nothing to add, I want to uh, segue into something I believe strongly, uh, that Vlad Putin is uh, currently trying to figure out how to price his oil and natural gas in, uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, because digital energy for beautiful natural resource <clears> energy, and now your property rights angle. So, um, when Bitcoin, uh, when oil and natural gas is priced in Bitcoin, Bitcoin will become the de facto reserve asset of the world. And yes, I agree, we get to the tens of trillions easily, the fifties of trillions easily. And in fact, that's when you get to Bitcoin prices in today's dollars of well over two to five million dollars of bitcoin um well said michael nothing more to add for the optionality of pricing energy in bitcoin it's coming sooner than you think
1: Well, so i I have an opinion on that i i think that sometimes we we get too excited about about uh competing with currencies like the dollar and i don't think we need to for example uh, people ask me, am I gonna price my software in Bitcoin? And the answer is no, I'm gonna sell it in dollars, but I can, I convert all of the money that I earn into Bitcoin. And, uh, and you know, Putin could sell all of his oil in dollars and just convert the reserves into Bitcoin. And, and uh, so could anybody else. Um, my advice to anybody would be, if you're running a business, and people are trading with you in a currency. If you're in China, you know, you trade in CNY, and then if you can convert that into BTC, you do that. If you're in Argentina, and you got to trade in pesos, you convert the pesos into BTC, right? If, um, if someone wants to trade with you in a certain currency, you trade with them, but you know, some people say, pay me in Bitcoin. Well, it's good to be paid in Bitcoin, but you can also get paid in dollars and immediately converted to Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent, except that it, it involves one more middleman and understand that that middleman is generally a bank that's taking a lot of VIG out of your trade. But to, to, to eliminate that, I agree, because think of Bitcoin as being your savings account and your fiat currency account being your checking account. I agree with you 100%. You need fiat currencies because they eliminate the need for barter. So treat your checking account or your fiat currency account like your checking account. This is what Nick Zabo says. And treat your savings account or your Bitcoin as your savings account. You can have a dual system, a parallel system that will enrich the United States if they embrace this beautiful technology. So you'll have the U.S. fiat reserve currency And you'll have the U.S. controlling and owning most of the reserve asset of the world called Bitcoin. How you get there, is there a middleman switching fiat currency into Bitcoin? Doesn't matter to me, Michael. At the end of the day, it's your closed thermodynamic loop where it's the rule of conservation of energy. So, yeah, next subject, I think uh, this whole thing about digital property. uh, I need to buy more Bitcoin. That's all I know. I
5: think.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a good segue to stablecoins and the entire stablecoin discussion this week. And I, I, you know, I think that um, what's very clear, if you've read that report, and I just I read every word of it. What's very clear is that um, the regulators have embraced Bitcoin, and they've embraced the idea of stablecoins um, moving at the speed of light over crypto rails and i so i think that those are two good things i think that um it's also interesting that we've got about 130 billion dollars of stable coins right now and it's going to go one of two ways either they shut it down or they or they uh, provide a compliant path and their intention is to provide a compliant path and so I read this as it's a green light for banks to start to handle stablecoins, and if you, if you pair the stablecoin report with the words of uh, Helena McWilliams, who's the chair of the FDIC, who said in the same week, she said, I think that we need to allow banks in this space while appropriately managing and mitigating risk. What I see is, I see a whole host of regulators. I mean, the, the president's report was driven by the White House with the, with the cooperation of the CFTC, the SEC, Treasury, and they even consulted with, you know, three other agencies, and they talked to everybody under the sun. What I, what I read into this is, is there's a green light or an intention to allow banks to issue stable coins and there's also an intention to allow banks to hold Bitcoin. And if they actually work out that transparency, there's no reason why stable coins won't grow from 130 billion to a trillion to 10 trillion. And they'd be and and this would be the US dollar moving as a stable coin everywhere in the world. And there's no there's no reason why we wouldn't see an explosion in adoption of Bitcoin as a reserve asset at the same at the same time, because the only thing that's holding back Bitcoin or stablecoin usage is people say Bitcoin, it might be banned. It's going to zero and stable coin. Uh, maybe there'll be a rug pull and there'll be a run on the bank and I can't trust them. And the result is large corporations and, and large institutions aren't using these for the uh, corporate treasury remittance use case or for just general broad-based payments. So either both things have to go to zero or Bitcoin's going to a million dollars a coin and stable coins are going from a 100 billion to a trillion and beyond. It's one or the other. And the big question is, how does the United States regulatory apparatus feel about it? And um, what I saw in the last two weeks is that they feel that Satoshi's innovation is real. Bitcoin is property. and and uh, there is a place for uh, stable US dollars. And uh, so what I see is I see the function of money, bifurcating into a medium of exchange, which is going to be the U.S. dollar, and a store of value, which is going to be Bitcoin. And I see 8 billion people on the planet and one and a half billion are behind the China curtain, and they're living with CNY, and they may or may not be allowed to, to, to move and store a uh, Bitcoin. They may be stuck or locked out of that. But the other 6 billion people on the planet they would love to get their hands on dollars and they'd love to get their hands on bitcoin and um there's a hundred million companies that trade in that would trade in dollars and and millions of accounting systems wired for dollars so although some people think it's common in the community to think well it's bitcoin versus the dollar it's not bitcoin versus the dollar (laughs) The war is Bitcoin versus gold and Bitcoin versus index funds and Bitcoin versus low quality assets and Bitcoin versus property that's been monetized and cost twice as much as you want to pay for it. The war is against weak assets and Bitcoin is going to demonetize a hundred trillion dollars of them next. And on the other side, the real war is USD versus CNY. I mean, we, we have to have a currency and, the de- and and as long as there's a government of China, and as long as there's a government of the U.S., the U.S. mandates that you pay tax when you transfer property, but you can transfer currency tax-free. The Chinese government does the same thing. So what we have is a situation where, you know, as long as there is a national government, as long as there's an EU or a U.S. dollar or China, there's going to be a currency. But what I see is, 66 countries have dollarized. There's 130 currencies, according to Wikipedia, 130 floating currencies. And maybe the world only needs two of them, Greg. <laughs> maybe, I mean, at the end of the day, instead of thinking, you know, uh, Bitcoin is, is uh, is a, you know, counter the dollar, a different way to view this is, The U.S. dollar on a stable coin could serve 6 billion people as the medium of exchange. It'll probably crash the bottom 100 currencies. And you'll see every weak currency in the Western sphere of influence will be dollarized on stable coins if they put this through. If if we work this out and all those people, of course, you're not going to hold. You're going to hold bolivars for a day. You're going to hold pesos for a week. You're going to hold U.S. dollars for a few months. And you're going to put, you're going to have one, two, three, five percent of your money in their checking account. that's stable coins. And, and then you're going to want to move the rest into a Bitcoin as a store of value. And of course, you've got against that 30 years of institutional inertia, where you've got all sorts of institutions and funds that they have to allocate to certain asset classes even five years after. It's obvious they shouldn't be. The fact that anybody's allocating to gold 10 years after it stopped working is testament to institutional inertia in that regard. So I think, uh, I think ultimately, there's one more comment here. I think that the crypto community fe- uh, views this report with trepidation because it's going to bring regulation to DeFi, regulation to stablecoin, and regulation to security tokens. And we can see that writing on the wall. But I think that the rest of the world and the institutions, the corporations, the banks, and all of the large institutional investors will see the exact opposite in time. Their view is going to be You know, now maybe Microsoft can move $10 billion cross borders with a stable coin or Amazon can move $10 billion back and forth. So whereas you're going to have two interpretations, the interpretation, you know, of the crypto community is going to be, you know, slightly biased negative. But the interpretation of the large institutions for this is really strongly biased positive and the conclusion is, if we move forward, the U.S. dollar can, can actually emerge as the world reserve digital currency. It can be the currency on, on six billion smartphones used every minute of the day. And Bitcoin is going to be the world reserve digital asset, the strongest store of value. And everything's just going according to plan. I, could, I couldn't really be better as far as I can see. You have any reaction to that? And maybe yeah. there are
2: other people in the audience that well, can, I, just, I, can I, I, I
1: want to call up to talk about it because it's it's the news of the week.
2: Well, Michael, here's can I just say one thing before we call up anyone else? Once yeah. again, you've done your homework before anyone else has, or certainly. I love this. Um, I wanted to say, yes, all of those other currencies that are at risk are going to fail anyway. Okay, of the 180 fiat's that are in the world, the U.S. dollar, if they don't get their act together, will be the last fiat to fail. So everyone else will fail before that. And that's called contagion. And that's what credit markets fear the most. But let's take a step back. At something you mentioned and war on index funds so some news of the day that I focus on is a guy that goes along short different securities or positions I've been calling to be short Western Union stock as a pocket trade for a while now um, and today they just came out with forward guidance that actually looks pretty ugly and all the analysts on Wall Street run to adjust their price targets down The biggest owners of Western Union, which is a failing business because of all the payment rails and Bitcoin that we know, um, are the index funds, BlackRock and Vanguard, that own it because it has a weighting in the S&P 500. Uh, That in itself is uh, poor asset allocation, but people run to the index funds because they want exposure to the asset class called equities. And that equity, Western Union, is in the S&P 500. Well, look western union is baked okay it should be a core short position uh in my opinion this is not financial advice but what it does blend into is the more what you're bringing out the efficient allocation of capital and that's what we are striving for above all else is a return to free market pricing of risk and capital allocation so i love your thesis Again, it's the checking account and the savings account. And yes, the USA has been served a gift from China. And it's my sincere hope as a Canadian that the USA succeeds in embracing this beautiful technology and leading the free world to its rightful conclusion, which is a store of value based on math and code. (coughs) So so well said. And at this point, I want to just say one thing. I actually had talked to Natalie Brunel about uh, potentially coming up on stage. But before we go there, I know that we have like Dylan LeClaire and some guys from Bitcoin Magazine that I respect hugely as well. So Dylan, um, you know, young kid, young gun that's uh, rewriting finance. So open over to you, Michael. But just want to call out those people as people that have influenced me and my belief in uh, this ecosystem and Bitcoin community that I continue to learn day after day from.
1: Yeah, I guess I leave it to the Bitcoin magazine host to if you want to bring up anybody up on stage and rifle through a bunch of questions or comments we can. I just I just end my my one thought which is which is uh, if Bitcoin is part of the western technology stack then the US dollar in the next decade is a winner and the losers are going to be every other currency and it, and, uh, and that's a, a very interesting insight. Just like when a company puts Bitcoin on its balance sheet, the company's stock becomes a Bitcoin derivative. If the United States puts Bitcoin on its balance sheet, which it does indirectly because all the companies in the U.S. are, are, are holding it, then the U.S. dollar becomes a Bitcoin derivative. Um, and, you know, you want to be really aggressive, right? I think someone pointed this out. The the first company to pr- or sorry, the first country to print its own currency and buy Bitcoin with it, right? The uh, in El Salvador they can't do this because they don't have their own currency. But if Turkey or somebody else that did print a currency, if they just started printing their currency to buy Bitcoin and they would flipped their balance sheet, then they would start to become a Bitcoin derivative. And now you're jacked into something going up 170 percent a year instead of sitting on reserve assets that are dollars that are losing 20% of their power a year. So there's extraordinary geopolitical opportunity here. And there's extraordinary corporate opportunity. Every company can decide, you know, whether they want to plug their P&L into Bitcoin or plug their balance sheet into Bitcoin, and how they add value. And I don't I don't think it's obvious what the answer is. I mean, there's a lot of technical execution, a lot of strategy. But one thing that I am sure of is like in my entire life, I don't think I ever saw an opportunity that is just compelling. We're talking about the complete and utter digital digital transformation of the concept of energy, the concept of property, the concept of money. And I guess... I'll end with like a great shout out to our man Jason Lowry, who who turned the world upside down with a sketch on a cocktail napkin where he reminded everybody that the entire military apparatus of of the world is meant to protect property rights. And if half of that money, our monetary value, flows into a synthesized digital asset, and we started using electricity and proof of work to defend the property rights. We could dramatically shrink and decrease the exposure we have uh, to defending the physical property. So, okay, so I'll shut up
2: shout out here to Jason Lowry as well Michael I've had dinner with him Uh, myself and Peter McCormick were in Boston and had dinner with uh, Jason what an exceptional young man that uh, is every word and every bit as honest in person as he comes across to me anyway uh, as a Bitcoin supporter so shout out to a young kid 24 years old that is also going to change the world so hopefully we can hear from Dylan LeClaire another young man who's working hard to change the world and any anyone else you want to bring on stage uh uh ck yeah sure hey guys uh, it's dylan speaking um
6: michael i was just going to ask you um in regards to microstrategy's capital allocation is the plan essentially just uh, with bitcoin as as collateral um you know as as it continues to monetize from a one trillion dollar asset to a five to a ten trillion dollar asset Uh, Anytime there is just kind of a, you know, some volatility spike or liquidation event uh, in the legacy markets, is it essentially just your guys' uh, plan to just kind of lever up in a a way that you find to be, um, you know, uh, I guess risk-reward attractive and, and just continue to do that the whole way? You know, I mean, right now
1: we've got about $6 billion of unpledged collateral. So we've got $6 billion of assets. We're not generating yield on it. And we're not borrowing against it. It it indirectly supports the equity and the converts, but and then we've got a billion dollars of pledge collateral against a five hundred million dollar loan, right? So, so if you look at what we what we think the future is, right? I mean, I think the future is Bitcoin goes from a trillion to two trillion to five trillion to ten trillion to twenty trillion to forty trillion to eighty trillion to one hundred and sixty trillion to three hundred trillion to five hundred trillion, and maybe to a is it a quadrillion? I guess <laughs> a thousand trillion, right? That's, that's the direction I see with volatility. And I think the, the question of what are we going to do? The, the basic answer is whoever owns the most Bitcoin at the end wins, right? So you don't, you got to keep acquiring Bitcoin and uh, by, by any means you can. And, as a public company, the question for us is just what's accretive. So, you could do it with cash flows. So we're a synthetic miner. If we generate 100 million in cash flow and we buy Bitcoin, it's the same as mining 100 million in Bitcoin a year, right? So, so we're doing that. You can also do it uh, by uh, by mixtures of either equity offerings, but only if it only if you're you know, the equity is going to be a premium, right? If, if, if the equity is priced at a point where it would be, it would be uh, creative to issue equity, then it makes sense. But if the equity is priced oddly against the Bitcoin, it would be diluted. So I have to always consider, is that a creative or diluted? And you did that it's earlier
6: part- in the air, correct? Um, you,
1: we sold had $400 million. million we sold $400 million worth of equity and we bought Bitcoin, but we we sold the equity, uh, like seven twenty a share, and we bought the Bitcoin at forty five thousand a share, right? So, it all, it all depends, and we're always reconsidering that. The third way to do it is we could refinance some of our existing debt, right? I mean, if you've got a billion dollars pledged against a five hundred million dollar note, if I refinanced it, you know, maybe I could refinance it down or refinance it up or something, right? a fourth way is you know you could have issue issue more converts if the market was right for that and of course the convert market is different than the junk market a fifth way would be to establish credit lines against your 6 billion in collateral a seventh a, a sixth way would be to to issue debt against the asset against the collateral itself and And that hasn't been done yet, but at some point in the future, I expect there will be asset-backed bonds that are backed by Bitcoin. A seventh way would be to contribute the Bitcoin uh, into some uh, yield-bearing account and generate yield off it, right? And there are people that would pay me yield on it if I felt good with the counterparty risk. And an eighth way might be Remember what I talked about property? I said you can mortgage it, you can sell it, you can lean it up. Well, lean, you know, with Bitcoin, you could lean it up. Leaning it up, meaning you give a slice of it in some in some context to, to some application to use in return for some consideration. And I think it's outside of the, con- the scope of our, our spaces here. But suffice it to say that if I have $6 billion or $7 billion of digital energy and it's currently generating me no no yield right there's all sorts of different ways to generate some return on it and then to take that return and invest that back into more bitcoin so how do i decide what to do counterparty risk mark, you know market arbitrage every you know how many markets do i have here you know, Dylan, like I got, I got the options market, the converts market, the Bitcoin market, the Bitcoin futures market, you know, I got lots of things. So, so the market arbitrage, the counterparty risk, the applications, the proposals, you know, the debt markets. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to do because I guarantee you I'll do something that will surprise you. And if it doesn't work, I won't do it. I'll do something different. And, It all requires a lot of analysis and a lot of prudent thought to step your way through it. But you know, like a year ago, we we in essence sold equity at $140 a share to buy Bitcoin. That's the Dutch auction. Then we did a convert at $398 strike to buy Bitcoin. Then we did a convert at $1,432 strike to buy Bitcoin. Then we did a junk bond to buy Bitcoin. Then we generated a bunch of cash flow to buy Bitcoin. Then we did an ATM, and we sold some equity to buy Bitcoin. Then we sold some more software and bought some more Bitcoin. What's next?
6: So what you're so what you're telling me is it's a pretty good bet to, to borrow five hundred million and buy uh, Bitcoin at thirty seven thousand when your break even is fifty seven thousand in twenty
1: twenty eight. Yeah, you, you know, I asked everybody on Twitter. You know, like I got I got a lot of harassment from the trolls when I did that. But I asked somebody on Twitter, and I said, "Do you think the Bitcoin's going to go up more than six percent over the next seven years?" And it's ninety one percent consensus. Everybody thinks, right? So, so if I offered you a billion dollars at six percent interest to buy Bitcoin right now, would you take it?
6: I don't have the billion now, but I would take it, damn straight.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's. It's very simple, right? Like, I I think it all comes down... The hardest part about this, Dylan, is it's not believing in in your business, right? How many businesses believe that they will grow over time 7% a year? Well, there's plenty, 6% a year. It's not that. It's just actually aligning your shareholders so that they're long, so that the shareholders all buy into the mandate. If you can align your shareholders then the world opens up with options. Then you just have to be prudent about how you, how you manage these things.
6: Appreciate the response.
1: Yeah.
7: Now you want to jump in?
8: Julie, thanks so much to Bitcoin magazine and to CK. Um, Thank you so much, Michael and Greg. Michael, I've looked up to you for so long. And one of the, my favorite things that you say is Bitcoin is hope. And you know, what I really wanted to touch on is I come from an immigrant background. My family came here wanting the American dream. And I worked in legacy TV, mainstream news for more than 10 years. And I recently quit to focus on Bitcoin. And part of the reason I quit is because for a while I haven't had hope. Um, and I think it's because I've seen the country get so divided. And I truly believe America is in this situation of such division and angst because most people can't envision anything outside of the current system especially if they don't know about bitcoin we are trapped in this paradigm we've built walls around ourselves and our tribes as defense mechanisms and we don't even realize that these walls are not real and i think you know learning from people like you bitcoin challenges you to just to justify these walls by offering sort of this consciousness of what can exist outside of the current construct of governance and society and bitcoiners realize that There's this huge, rich, abundant world outside of the walls of the current system. And Bitcoin shows me that there's no reason to stay. There's no reason to fight amongst ourselves for the scraps that are left in the walls. And we can build something far greater and far more prosperous and far more accessible outside of them to everyone who wants to take part. And I think, you know, it's taught me that our natural state of being is just freedom. And I think Bitcoin is the ultimate expression of freedom. So I just want to thank you because you've really provided so many people with hope and Bitcoin is hope.
1: What well, makes a difference to you? I was pretty depressed in March myself. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Bitcoin uh, gave me hope. Actually, it really, it really did energize me. And uh, I, I think it's what made me so enthusiastic about educating the world on this. And continue to educate the world. Because I, I think we have a lot more education to do. It takes a while to deliver a new idea to billions of people is not gonna happen. Sometimes I think we've been at it for, I've been at it as hard as I could for a year and a and a, and a quarter. And it's like, we're just scratching the surface, you know, <laughs> 1%, 2%. But, but uh, thank you for everything you do. And I, I think you, have, you put your finger on the most important point here, which is we need uh, as a group to go out and educate the entire world on Bitcoin and convey the message that Bitcoin is hope. Everybody's got problems. The bond, the bond funds have problems. The, you know, the financial advisors. Fidelity's got two trillion dollars worth of bonds. They got problems. You know, the, the professional investors have problems. Everybody without a bank account has problems. Everybody that lost a job is problem. Even the politicians have problems. You know, the mayor of New York's trying to figure out how to turn that around. He's looking to Bitcoin. You know, the mayor of Miami. You know, the president of a country. Vladimir Putin's got his problems. Everybody on Earth, even the even the Chinese, have their problems. If if they don't like Bitcoin, it's because they don't understand that it's the solution to their problem. Injecting pure digital energy into the civilization, right? It's like bringing fire to the civilization or bringing electric electricity to the civilization. It can't help but make everything better. But I got to imagine that the first time somebody came into a camp with fire and flaming torches, everybody else recoiled in horror. And the first time someone just said they were going to wire up everybody's house with electricity and they burned somebody's house down or electrocuted someone, there was probably a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt. And now here we are, we're carrying this new torch, digital energy, a new thing. So fundamentally different that people have to discard all of their models, all their portfolio theory, everything, right? All all these investors saying, well, I gotta be diversified. Well, you know, when you build a building and you're standing out, you know, on on a steel beam, you don't diversify the steel beam. Steel, steel is metallic energy. Steel is a higher form of metallic energy than iron, which is a higher form of metallic energy than bronze which is a better form of metallic energy than wood or stone. And so to build our civilization, we needed steel, you know. And if someone came and said, let's just diversify the skyscraper with some steel and some balsa wood and some clay and some bronze and a little bit of brick here and there, so we'll be safe, you would scream at them, you're going to kill us all. You're going to kill us all. You know, you can't. It's The, the problem that the institutional investors have is they don't understand – that money is technology, and that there's a better technology that has obsolesced all their previous technologies. So they have this model of the world that, ha- that, that assumes that their materials are defective, Natalie, and, they, and because the materials are all defective, none of them work, then they, they, they act suboptimally. If the entire world economy uses a currency that loses 10 or 20% of its value a year it's kind of like having oxygen or, or having blood where you're sucking 20% of the oxygen out of the blood every, every month. It's defective, but they've never lived in a different world. Same with the politicians. And so every single corner of our civilization, there's someone that's got a problem and they're struggling with defective money and defective technology and they all need to be communicated to do a different way. And there is no one way. So I just... I say... We should all just decentralize out and swarm everywhere we can and and every if you end the day converting someone to bitcoin so they understand it it was a good day
8: it's really great, michael and i love your analogies in fact when you talk about bitcoin being fire you sort of got me thinking about that. And I started to think of this analogy of like the US garden or the US system as a garden. And, you know, gardens can be beautiful, right? You can grow things that you need to eat and you can sustain yourself. But in reality, gardens are kind of fake and they can't really compete with nature, right? So they need walls because what you create is inherently unnatural and it would be overrun in a normal environment. And yet there's this sense of stability that we get. And I feel like we're all in this garden and Uh, you know, the control is created within the walls. But then you have one part of the garden that suddenly doesn't have food and we start fighting over the fact that the good parts of the garden aren't sharing with the other parts and we argue over little plots of land and the crops we grow aren't as sweet and nutritious as they once were. And then we have fiat, which is essentially this putrid fertilizer of the garden And it makes me feel like Bitcoiners have just found this fertile world outside of it. We found, you know, Yosemite and people are looking at us from inside their walls saying like, that's not real. That's not safe. You know, and we're here unfazed. We're operating on a wavelength of lightness. We're just, you know, we have hope because we've opted out of the broken system and we're inviting everybody to join us.
2: Natalie, it's Foss. Can I just say uh, that was beautiful and. The education process uh, is is actually happening a lot behind the scenes. Uh, you just never know how it happens. And I just want to share with the listeners that uh, two weeks ago, I gave a Bitcoin presentation to 45 members of Parliament in Canada. OK, so people are listening. We have the great educators out there like the Jeff Booths of the world, the Preston Pishes of the world, obviously Michael Saylor. But then For the listeners, put these two names on your list as people you want to listen to in the asset management and risk management business that I've met through Bitcoin Twitter. James Lavish, hedge fund manager, Yale hockey player, and Aaron Segal, hedge fund manager, exceptionally good risk allocator, Midwestern American, both of who understand. So those two guys, James and Aaron, very little amount of followers on Twitter, huge brains and huge risk analysis experience. This education package that the Bitcoin community offers is off the charts. And one final shout out to a friend of mine in Madison, Wisconsin, who is a trauma surgeon in Madison, Wisconsin, Jane, uh, so, sorry, Jason Sansone, who I know met you, Natalie, uh, in Miami. He is trying to put together an education package uh, for not just Bitcoin, but finance and the world to understand asset allocation and risk analysis. And he's a trauma surgeon in Madison, Wisconsin, and this is off the edge of his desk that he's putting probably 20 hours of uh, work a week into this project. So God bless all the Bitcoin uh, Twitter guys out there. The Bitcoin Maxis, the partial Maxis, the Jason Lowry's, you guys are educating the world. I'm 58 years old with three children that are going to be the benefits of the hard work and the freedom that Bitcoin brings. And so from Canada, I just want to say thank you to everybody. Uh, It's not, you know, USA is going to lead the world, but all other countries are going to benefit from it as well.
1: Very cool. CK, you want to bring anybody else up on stage?
7: So we have uh, TXMC here. I don't know if you have a question for uh, for Michael. Um, if not, uh, maybe P or Alex could jump in.
4: TXMC, what you got?
3: Uh, yeah, I guess I just have a question. You know, I, I've, I've been getting immersed in this space for the last year or so, and, uh, and something that I, I've been trying to figure out what I can do myself to try to have an impact. And I, I think, you know, we see this massive disruption coming to the entire legacy financial system in the form of Bitcoin. And uh, I, I think the thing that I wonder about is, you know, because <clears throat> there's only so many people that I can recruit uh, an orange pill, you know, before the financial system hits the wall, so to speak. And we, I think, you know, I believe that's going to happen in my lifetime. I think a lot of people would agree with that. And so I guess I'm just kind of wondering... What myself an individual in the bitcoin space can do um, to help minimize the destructive impact of that collision with the wall so to speak so that when bitcoin consumes the financial system and we emerge on the other side with a new world reserve currency how we can have less ashes remaining to fight over so to speak like how can we reduce the damage from an individual contributor perspective how can we Make sure that this transition uh, leaves enough remaining and standing on the other side that we you know we can be prosperous in this new system. like does that make does my question make sense?
1: yeah, I, I have an opinion, and then Greg, I'll probably have an opinion. My opinion is is first of all, we we should make clear that there's a win-win proposition for for all of the institutions and all the groups and all the people around us. so, So, uh, you know, what you want to do is you want to show your company how they can win by embracing Bitcoin. And then you want to show your neighbors how they can win by embracing Bitcoin. And then you want to show the mayor of your city how they can win. And then you want to show, you know, your church how they can win, your club or your university or every institution you're a part of. And then show the state and then show the country Everybody can win. Bitcoin fixes everything. Bitcoin, you know, is better for every institution, trust, family, company. They don't know how it's better. And the one thing we should try to avoid is creating win-lose scenarios. So, you know, Bitcoin can win and the United States can win. You know, Bitcoin can win and your employer can win. You don't have to say bitcoins you know you're a bank i work for a bank and we're hoping to destroy all the bankers what you could say is bitcoin offers banking services we're a bank if we plug our bank into bitcoin our stock price will double right if we plug our city into bitcoin our tax rate will be cut in half if we plug the u.s dollar into bitcoin the u.s dollar will serve four billion other people is not serving now help every politician every ceo every investor everybody figure out how they win you know how they benefit how their life is benefited how they have hope from bitcoin so you certainly you know somebody right you're in a community you've got associations you know people right that the real power is going to be in the institutions right like when, they, when the guy that works at Apple Computer convinces, convinces Tim Cook that they ought to move $50 billion into Bitcoin and they ought to build Bitcoin support into the iPhone and into iCloud and they give Apple a vision of giving economic empowerment to a billion people via Apple devices and they create demand for a trillion dollars worth of Bitcoin That will be one pretty powerful orange pill, right? If you orange pill, you know, someone that runs Google or Apple, it's a trillion dollar orange pill. If you orange pill the mayor of Austin, Texas, right, it could be a a million or 10 or 100 million dollar orange pill. You can orange pill an entire country. But but some but too often, you know, and this is a pet peeve of mine too often the rhetoric is for us to win our enemies must lose or you know it's like you know we're going to win and you're going to lose and i think that that's more divisive and it's not as constructive and it's not as effective so instead of like instead of telling vladimir putin like he should price oil and bitcoin which is counter to the interest of the united states why don't we tell Vladimir Putin, sell oil in the U.S. dollar, which is good for the United States, but he can go ahead and buy Bitcoin instead of holding gold in the in the Russian treasury, and he can convert some of his commodities and other investments into Bitcoin and launch Bitcoin mining businesses. And that'll be good for Russia and good for the U.S. and good for the world, right? Because whenever you have these win-lose scenarios, it's like, you know, if you... If you do this, then we lose, or when Bitcoin succeeds, all the banks will be destroyed. Not a good idea, right? I don't want to destroy the existing world. What I want to do is save it. And if we go out there and we show people how their business is twice as good, their country is twice as good, their family is twice as happy, right, then we're all good. And I think that there's, there's a way to do that. So everybody's got a different story. Everyone's got a different opportunity. Go orange pill people. And while you're orange pilling them, right, try to, try to convince them to bring the, the monetary force, the energy of their institution to bear, right? Everybody has a balance sheet. They could invest in Bitcoin. But they also have a P&L. They do something. And, and some of them can build what they do into the Bitcoin ecosystem to their benefit and everybody else's. That's what I think. Greg, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah,
2: well said. Again, Michael, it's a you know, learning process always on my own part, too. I wanted to comment from a Canadian and to be very clear to make sure I, uh, people on this call understand how much I value Canada's close relationship with the United States. I have no interest in seeing the U.S. fail absolutely zero in fact i want the us to succeed because canada is a great country but we have to be very uh, honest with ourselves we're a g7 nation but the reason we're a g7 nation is because we lived right north of the most powerful and rich country in the world uh there's a network transfer that needs to take place and that network transfer takes place over time and jeff booth and i talk about this all the time we don't want the failure of one system uh, that being the Fiat currency system uh, at the, you know, for the benefit of Bitcoin. We want two parallel systems and a network transfer. And when you do a network transfer, you don't turn one network off, and it's supposed that the new network is going to tra- uh, pick up all the slack. So, um, this is something I brought up before. I've lived in the u s, and in fact, my roommate from university was killed on nine eleven, a very sad day for me and all of America. But it just showed me what a great nation can recover from a from an absolutely atrocious uh, event. And while I'm not trying to equate the failure of Fiat over time to such a brutal uh, event as 9/11, I will tell you that the United States is absolutely the bastion, the last bastion of true free and economic uh, incentive, creative destruction, while there is still some socialization that takes place, our our desire in Canada, in my opinion, is to see the success of the United States, and there are enough politicians up here in Canada that believe the same thing. Okay, um, it's a North American battle. It's a west. It's a battle for the west. And yes, like Steve Covey, Seven Habits Habits of Highly Effective People. Think win win. I think that's great advice. Think win win. Uh, Orange pill people with the win-win solution. As Jeff Booth says, there's going to be 100 years of change in the next 10 years. Don't suppose that you know exactly how every change is going to uh, pan out. Just know that you need to be uh, prepared for a technological revolution that's going to accelerate, uh, you know, as I said, or as Jeff says, 100 years of change in the next 10 years.
1: Who's next?
2: Yeah, so, hey,
7: we got 15 minutes left. uh, So we'll want to go with Wealth Theory and then Jay, and then we can close it out with last words from Michael and Greg. Uh, So, Wealth, why don't you go first?
5: I mean, okay? I just got my headphones on here. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to maybe comment on that, um, on TXMC's question there, um, because I think we've heard a lot about – Sort of a top-down move into Bitcoin, where there's like we're talking about how wealthy people can get exposure to Bitcoin and how revolutionary that can be. But as far as orange-pilling people, I think we should maybe also touch on um, what this does for individuals. Right, there are a lot of people in the U.S. that don't have any wealth and they don't have any property, and they're like the the workforce is quite demoralized. So I I think last month it came out that there were three million more job vacancies and unemployed people in the U S and so we're seeing young people, especially opt out of employment because they feel like there's no value created there. But even some of the young guys on this stage, um, they were influential for me in turning to Bitcoin. And one of the things that sort of orange pilled me was I saw the effect that had on their lives. And so these are guys that, you know, they didn't have any capital, but when they understood Bitcoin, they were motivated by it because they realized like they, they could actually tangibly improve their lives. As individuals and so when we talk about Bitcoin is hope it was hope for them and it motivated them and then so you know show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome so these people start to be motivated they start to work hard they start to do well and in doing that they lift themselves and they lift their community and they lift the people around them and that's how we change the world way right? we change the world with individuals it's not that we have to go out and convince people to buy Bitcoin it's that if you understand that you can save your time and energy that's been expelled and put that into property that can't be diluted, you can improve your life. And when you improve your life, you improve your communities, you improve the world. And I think that's probably the most powerful orange pill that anyone can give to anybody is just show people that this is a better way to do things. So that's, that's just all I wanted to say. It wasn't really a question.
1: You know, when I was at DuPont, you know, they had a motto, better living through technology It was first better living through chemistry and then better living through technology. But at its core, if you understand Bitcoin as technology, then you can live a better life and you have hope. And you really have a bifurcation. Those that think it's just a speculative asset, for them it's never going to be more than 1% or 2% trade. It's just a speculation. And those that understand it's technology if we can just make sure that we communicate as technology, then technology gives you confidence, right? It's like giving you electricity. It's like giving you a sailing ship. It's like giving you a, if you're on the plane and you don't have a bow and arrow, you're going to die. It's like giving you a way to live and then you can hope for and plan something. And it's, it's just the most profound technology we've got. But I, I would say the great majority of people don't understand it as technology they think it's a just a speculative crypto asset. And if we can get around that corner, then I think we make progress with everybody.
7: Greg, you want to respond? Nothing more.
2: Beautifully said. I'm can't. i I'm happy that you have wealth theory. Uh, beautifully said by both you guys. And uh, uh, before wealth theory comes up here, uh, I want to tell you that uh, I don't want to dox him, but I have met him in real life as well. And when I uh, first started, I wouldn't say battling with him on Twitter, but certainly uh, uh, talking with him. I thought he was a 20, uh, sorry, a 50 or 60 year old hedge fund manager from uh, Connecticut. And he was certainly someone in the gold space, uh, has history in gold space. I'm not going to tell you what he is. I will tell you he doesn't live in Connecticut and that I've met him and I was able to drive there in under a day. Uh, I welcome uh, to the uh, wealth theory to make a comment because uh, he is absolutely an example of someone who's a good risk manager because he was definitely in the gold space and has now embraced Bitcoin as the future. Uh, and so uh, look forward to hearing what uh, wealth theory has to say.
7: Well, uh, he jumped off stage, but we are getting to the last ten minutes here. Jay, jump in here.
9: Hey, thanks. Um, what's up, Greg? See you tomorrow. <laughs> um, hey, Michael. Uh, Michael, you you put out a tweet um, in uh, on on uh, October first, and it's something that I have been saying for a while, and it relates to um, I think th- it relates to new new participants coming into Bitcoin, essentially, right? So. Your tweet was about wash sale rules. And I've been saying that I think that the wash sale, um, I'll, I'll read the tweets for people because I can't nest it up there. You wrote, if wash sale, if sorry, if wash rules are applied to digital assets, selling and volatility will dramatically <coughs> decrease. I've been saying this all year because I think what I, th- think happens is new participants that come into Bitcoin, and by the way, your comments about it being a technology, I think are 100% right. I am a technology founder in my previous life and and now an investor, and uh, I do view it as a technology as well. Um, So that is is really a great way to put it. Um, And I don't think new people view it that way, because when I got into it in 2016, I viewed it, as you said, as a trade, right? And I viewed it that way because I learned about Bitcoin probably in 2012 or so. And missed it for a while. And I was just telling this to Greg recently. And I was like, you know, he says a good trader is someone that realizes they made an error and gets new information and changes their mind, right? And so th- that's what I did. And then I learned over time once I had money in it and I started to research it more and more and more what it really is, right? And so you really start to expand over time. But you got to be in the asset to understand it. And uh, what I find is that people that get into it and they see this massive volatility, they get shaken out if they have too large of a position initially, right? Right. And I think that the absence of the wash sale uh, rules applying to it uh, I think heightens the volatility. And I just wanted you to expand on that thought because you put that tweet out there. And I just something I've been saying for a while, Michael, and I just think that um I think what happens is, you know people see this thing drop down if they buy it, you know, traders, right, they buy it high, they sell it, they take that as an asset, that loss against other gains in their portfolio. And they may even, in fact, start to drive it down by shorting it, right? Like they're trying to exasperate this. And I think if they just applied the wash sale rules to Bitcoin, as they do for stocks, maybe
1: we could eliminate that.
9: But I'm just curious what you have.
1: Yeah. So I, I think the big point here is, if you're a Bitcoiner, You shouldn't be uh, fearful of the regulatory uh, environment that's evolving. I I think that, I mean, sometimes in our community we think, well, all regulation is bad and we don't want them involved. But the truth is, uh, if we normalize a certain set of regulations around Bitcoin, it's actually going to be great for Bitcoin. It's going, to, it's going to make the asset class grow by an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude. It's going to eliminate the volatility. It's going to improve the, uh, the stability. And it's probably going to accelerate the transition from all the other cryptos into Bitcoin. Because here's where the volatility comes from, in my opinion. One, we're conjoined with the other crypto markets, So someone's trading at 100 to 1 leverage, you know, Shiba doggy coin, and they cross-collateralize it with another dog coin, and then they trade that 20 to 1 leverage, and they do it on a Saturday night in a thinly liquid market. And then eventually they tie it back into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is getting the volatility, it's getting, it's getting the ripples, from highly leveraged altcoins on exchanges, and and in a regulated environment, you could never trade twenty to one leverage. If you you know, the max is two to one leverage in most in most normal equity houses. So the twenty to one leverage or the hundred to one leverage cross collateralized, you know, against six different coins. And if I have a billion dollar coin and there's only a hundred million or if I had a, hundred, a billion dollar coin, 100 billion in the float, and I, and I put a million dollars down and I levered it up 20 to 1, I can move that thing all around. So the first thing that's happening is there's a lot of ripples coming through the crypto ecosystem. And eventually, Bitcoin is the reserve asset and it hits Bitcoin. So this, the second observation is, is um, if, if Bitcoin gets hammered and you hammer it down $5,000 then if that was a S&P index, or if that was Apple stock, and you were hammered down that much, every investor would stare at it and say, am I long Apple? Yes, I'm not going to sell. Because if I sell it, I might have to buy it back at a higher price, it could move away from me. So 95% or 98% of investors that are long a security won't sell it, when it trades down due to random volatility. With Bitcoin, you get two really awful volatility drivers. First of all, nobody's cross collateralizing 16 yo-yo coins against Apple stock on Saturday night with thin liquidity and 100X leverage, right? That's not happening, right? You've got, you've got the, the thin liquidity on Saturday night, you've got the cross collateralized 100X leverage, So that's the that's the first thing, and the second thing is, when the price gets knocked down, I can sell it, take the loss, purchase it back again, and ride it up again. So I'm actually harvesting the tax loss, and this is completely legal. It's complete. It's not even a loophole. It's actually, it's actually a result of, in my opinion, probably an error um, many years ago, because. They apply, they don't apply wash rules to property, but every other property in the history of the human race was non-fungible. So if you sold your house at a loss, you could immediately buy another house. Okay, that makes sense because they're non-comparable things. They're both property, but they're different. Bitcoin is the first example where you sell a Bitcoin at 40000 and buy a Bitcoin at 40000 and you get got the same exact thing, but the tax treatment is much better. Now, why does it cause volatility? Because if I'm a hedge fund, I'm actually encouraged. There's an economic incentive to drive the price down, to sell it, to short it down further, and to buy it back. And so... So that would make no sense. You, you couldn't do it with a security. It, it's, you couldn't do it. But with a property that looks, like, um, that looks fungible, you can do it. And the result is you've just got an unregulated, highly levered market that will tend to be volatile. And you've got a tax code that encourages people it pretty much encourages every rational hedge fund to sell whenever the the price moves down 10%, or at least whenever it moves materially away from where you bought it, you should sell it and buy it back. But if you were going to sell a billion dollars of it, could you imagine if I hit the market and I sold a billion? I could probably drive the price down and then turn around and buy back a billion. Now, I don't do it because of the moral hazard and the optics. Like, I'm not i would never want to have a reputation for having done that but if i was in a dark pool and i was just an offshore investor or mutual or, or hedge fund i might just think i'm doing the right thing for my limited partners by capturing a billion dollar loss and it um
9: it's, it, it, asset, it's actually right, harvesting
1: volatility as a tax that, that loss
9: is an asset for them right that, that's what i keep trying to tell my friends that are Bitcoin. yeah they, they use that as an asset
1: Not- I think that I think that Congress may fix this by the way there's chatter in the House Ways and Means committee and you know the knee-jerk reaction to a bit of a Bitcoin maxi is I hate any politician even meddling but the truth is if they did establish Bitcoin para and they and they made the tax treatment similar to owning an index fund or like the s and p index it would probably decrease the volatility increase the confidence and you might have Hundreds of billions of dollars of capital flow into the market and it would increase the price dramatically because people aren't afraid of it. Because at this point, we're down, you know, there are only two knocks on Bitcoin. The first knock is, oh, I think the government's going to regulate it. And now people are over that and they realize that they're not banning it. Bitcoin's around forever. And so that's the first kind of ignorant, fearful comment from an institution. And the second fear. Is oh, it's too volatile. It's volatile, right? And um, if if we have a situation where it's treated like a like an index, I mean, Bitcoin is destined to be the monetary index of the 21st century and beyond. Instead of S and P being the index, Bitcoin should be the index. If it's just treated like that, then I think the vol- It's possible, you know, when you think about it really hard, that the trading of it could decrease by a factor of 10.
2: Guys, the interesting thing, it's Foss, is that uh, so, uh, having worked at a hedge fund for 15 years. hedge funds hedge, hedge funds get knocked for being some of these vicious people in the market. Let's understand that by far, by far the largest pools of capital in the world are long only investors. And long-only investors like a degree of regulation. It's a safety net for them. It's the asset allocators and the uh, theory of agents in the long-only funds that love a degree of regulation. So a hedge fund, it sounds sexy for you to lay out this trading strategy for a hedge fund um, and shorting and then driving markets around. When the big money gets involved, the hedge funds cannot short enough if Calpers or CPPIB is on the other on the other side and has an open order to buy 10 billion dollars of bitcoin because that's what they need to get a 1% portfolio allocation when the big boys get involved the big boys are not hedge funds The big boys are the trillion dollar asset allocators that are coming, kicking and screaming because they think they've missed it so far. They're going to come, like Michael says, when regulation makes it attractive for them to get into this market. So like it or not, they're coming. And like it or not, it's not the hedge funds that matter. It's the long only capital allocators. So, Jay, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. Great questions. And uh, Michael, once again, you nailed it. Um, You don't do it. And nor why would you do it? Because you're a long only allocator in the Bitcoin square. I don't think there's that many hedge funds that play that game. If you are, you're playing by picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Who in their right mind is short? The most perfect long volatility trade ever created. You don't short something at 60,000 and try and make $5,000 on the downside when you know it can go to 2 million bucks and gap up by $40,000. But Greg,
9: wait, let me just jump in, Greg. I think what like so earlier in the year when we hit 64,000 and then the, and then the technical analysis indicated that there was a breakdown in the technicals, right? And it was starting to pull back. I think to what Michael might be saying is that if they were buying in on the way up, because traders are momentum buyers, right? So they they won't buy the bottom when they see it and then capitulate the other way. As it starts to go back up, when it hit the 29,000, it starts to go the other way. They start to buy, you know that, right? So they'll buy on the way up. So they were buying on the way up some of these funds. And then when it went the other way, they're quick to take the loss because it's like, okay, I bought it 60 or I bought it 55 and it's going below. Okay, I'll capture that loss. That's an asset against the other trading that I had for gains, right? So they can capture because they can't do that in the stock market, right? Because of the wash sale rules. So they're able to do that. They can take that. And then I guess to his point is you're you're right. It's absolutely insane, right? It's insane to short Bitcoin. But if you see that it's moving in a certain direction, it's just momentum. <clears throat> Let it try to exasperate it on the way down to to further uh drive the positions that you do have well, and not- maybe get more losses. Yeah, yeah. just
1: to We've, we don't have a lot of time here because I think we're almost out. And this is an interesting subject we could spend half an hour on. Just to be clear on my point, Greg, they're not short. They're simply selling $100 million and immediately buying the $100 million back and capturing the tax gain. And you can do that if there's no WASH trading rule. Yeah. But if you implement the WASH trading rule, there'd be $200 million of trading that would just disappear. I hear you. guys. And
2: here's the exciting thing. Yes, they're short term so bulls, bears, and pigs, right? Liquidity comes from all different uh, angles. My big thing is, and I've dealt with these funds in my life. It's really exciting when you have a pocket order from a huge account like Capri, and I'm just throwing that name out. somebody in high yield who dominates high yield and by the way, is a very large equity holder in your uh, in your company, michael my uh, uh, your micro strategy stock, Capital Research out of Los Angeles, is run by a friend of mine who I used to trade with. Okay, full stop. When he gives you a pocket order to buy ten, you know, fifty million or a hundred million versus bonds, and you don't tell the world, and all of a sudden you have that in your pocket, and you're like, short it to me, hedgies. I think it's a good trade. If you think it's going down, I have the bid. And guess who wins that game every single day? The Capri's of the world, not the hedge funds that are too smart by a half. So I'm really excited about all the different players in the market. My final suggestion is, though, at $60,000, Bitcoin is a rounding error. If you're too fancy and think you're a good trader, they're going to cart you off the floor. Put your portfolio in Bitcoin and the other X percent in these other stupid uh, assets that you think you can trade. And don't outsmart yourself in the Bitcoin world. That's, that's my advice. And, you know, seen it, done it. Bitcoin is not a trading vehicle. Bitcoin is insurance. And you don't trade your fire insurance if you live in a fire zone. Very simple.
7: Well, sir. Uh, Greg, we never we never talked about evaluation from you, but I think that's a great place uh, for a last word. And Michael, why don't you close us out?
1: I I thank everybody for coming and spending the time today, and I, and for everybody that spends all their time orange pelling, uh, new bitcoiners and and communicating the opportunity. I want to thank every one of you. Uh, my motto: You do not sell your bitcoin. I just leave it at that. Do not sell your bitcoin. Otherwise. Um, thank you for all your support to everybody in the community
2: and Michael thank you for everything you do as a Canadian and I'm not sure you uh, asked me for this uh, CK but I'm throwing it out my target in today's dollars for Bitcoin two million dollars a coin very easy to get there five percent of total addressable market of nine hundred trillion US dollars globally five percent of nine hundred trillion 45 trillion 45 trillion divided by 21 million over 2 million a Bitcoin right now The market is telling you there's only a 3% chance of getting to 2 million dollar Bitcoin in today's dollars, right? 3% times 2 million is $60,000 a coin that's where bitcoins trading right now that means there's a 95 or sorry a 97% chance the market thinks it's going to zero I'm not giving you 100% certainty it's going to bit, uh, to $2 million a coin, but I'll take those odds. If the market's telling you there's only a 3% chance, my probability is way higher than 3%. So I buy it with my eyes closed. It's like going to the horse track with inside information. You've watched a horse train time and time again, and the track is laying 100 to 1 odds against your pony. Well, the track is wrong. Right now, the world is wrong on Bitcoin. Three percent probability of going to two million bucks of Bitcoin is absolutely way too low. My probability probably something closer to forty percent, which means until Bitcoin trades at eight hundred thousand dollars U.S. a coin, I'm a buyer. Don't overthink this. Thank you, everybody. Michael Saylor you're an absolute genius. Jay Gold, wish uh, I can't wait to talk to you tomorrow, and then all those other guys, Jason Lowry's of the world jason sansone seb bunny out in whistler british columbia trying to help educate the world on the bitcoin front and a bitcoin magazine contributor i can't say enough about how you guys have changed my life and the lives of my kids so uh thank you as well from canada good night
4: greg greg i just want to jump in and it's very rare that somebody gives a price prediction and i don't yell at them like why so bearish but uh you you, you've outdone yourself that's I love it that's incredibly uh incredibly bullish and incredibly exciting and i think most importantly cogent and reasonable i want to uh let everybody know in the space that uh i want to announce publicly that you will be a speaker at bitcoin 2022 which i'm ecstatic about so thank you for joining the uh the crew and the team you know of course uh michael saylor will be there as well but uh Bitcoin 2022 is going to be an amazing event and I can't wait to hear more conversations like this on stage there. So thanks.
7: Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Greg. Everyone go check out Bitcoin 22, go see Michael and Greg in person in Miami, use code HFSP, save 10%. Spend your Bitcoin to save an additional $100 off GA tickets, $1,000 off whale tickets uh yeah you know spend and replace never sell your bitcoin as michael says unless you're buying bitcoin 2022 tickets and uh yeah with that being said have a good night everyone
4: adios
0: yo what is going on plebs starting this fall bitcoin magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as barnes and noble don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actual insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout.